You're listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Hey everybody, this is Jason Wilson with the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Uh, today I am joined by Matt Vogel. Uh, thanks so much, Matt, for joining me on this first ever interview for the podcast. I'm super excited to have you. Uh, no problem. Glad to be here. Yeah, so for those of you that don't know, um, Matt does a lot of, um, how would you describe it, like health promotion, education yeah. um, for universities, colleges, Yeah. and lately you've been doing uh, a lot of work, particularly around cannabis education mm-hmm. um, and doing um, like harm reduction work. Uh, with universities? Yep, I think that's fair. A lot of, um, also, you know, I do stuff with high schools. I'll do uh, oh, okay. workshops with high schools and also different community coalitions will have me come in and do trainings with, um, you know, their staff, their uh, people in the community, et cetera. And I, you know, I taught kind of drugs and behavior classes for uh, many, over 10 years at the university level as well. So sort of a broad, holistic picture of substance use from history, uh, you know, pharmacology, policy, um, addiction, recovery, all of those domains. Just kind of a big survey. Yeah. Um, yeah so how, sure. what, um, what kind of got you into that type of work? You know, I've always been uh, in, interested in anything health related, I would say, as a core. Um, and, and so my, you know, my studies kind of took me on this pathway pretty unique pathway, I would say, overall, that led to a very interdisciplinary background in health and psychology and sociology. And I, I'm, I just, I really value when I think about health as an individual, as a, as a community, as a society, I think it's such an important topic that we need to focus on. We, and I'm, I'm a big advocate of prevention. And I love like thinking about health, not just around substance use education, but around, you know, sleep and stress management and nutrition and hydration and how are people expressing their emotions? All those aspects of health, I think, are a really Im- important part of who we are as people and who we are as a society. So, uh, yeah, but one of the t- content areas that I was asked to teach about was around substance use in general. So I, I you know, jumped at that opportunity because I think it's such an interesting topic and, and it connects to so many other topics. It's a very multidimensional topic topic to look at yeah so that was probably what sparked it and then from there I you know I just found that a lot of historically when I was looking at a lot of the education that was going on for young people in particular was either using fear tactics shame um, you know I I, just these methods that were not showing to be uh, valuable and also there's a lot of gaps in knowledge so young people would want to say hey like they'd ask an honest question and a lot of people who are doing substance use education don't really know so i always tell my colleagues all over the country i said like really if you're going to teach this stuff you really got to research and understand it like really understand the history of cannabis why it's illegal why it came to be that way students want to talk about sometimes about those things and they'll want to it gives you more social capital and credibility with them yeah, for sure. That's been um, my experience as well, working with um, universities as well as companies and um, even just person-to-person people I know that come to me and want to understand things about uh, cannabis or natural products broadly. I've What I've realized is there's a major deficit in knowledge and understanding um, and just the way that drug education is typically handled 
in school systems. I mean, even growing up, I mean, a lot of people are familiar with D.A.R.E. and, you know, those programs. And it, it seems like pu the public school systems are starting to evolve out of sort of that D.A.R.E. model. But there's still a big disconnect between the learner's curiosity and the educator's ability to meet that curiosity with material that is, um, um, for lack of a better word, sort of real, like, like yeah. connects with, yeah. with students on a real level. Um, a lot of it, from my experience, has been very fear-based um, and shallow. Like, and I yeah. think some of that is fear on the educator's part, scared to go yep. into these topics um, yes. because it's touchy. It and is. a lot of people have very strong emotional um, based uh, opinions about drugs and about health and wellness. Um, and so it's, it was really reassuring for me when I met you and learned about your work. And then, um, you know, I've done some guest lectures for you and that sort of thing and, and have been exposed to your teaching style. And I think something that's special about uh, the way you educate about these topics is that you, you really bring it, um, you know, to the students in a way that, that they recognize you're being genuine mm. and you're connecting them with real information that, um, you know, you do your best to try to not be biased either, you know, towards trying to make drugs seem... Um, more safe than they actually are right. or more demonized than they need to be. If that's, right. if that's appropriate to characterize it that way. I think um, that's accurate. I do. And I, and I, I would also say that going back to some of those educational programs, it's really, I, I also tell people, I think it was, it's really well intended. Yeah. I, I think there's yeah. fear. Like I have two teenage daughters. Right? I completely get where this comes from, where you kind of go, Oh my gosh, wait, I don't want this re reality for my kids. And they're going to be, smoking meth and amphetamines <laughs> and all these other things you start to have these worries and fears and i think so i understand it's really well intended i go back sometimes when i look i, I when i present sometimes i'll put up a picture of nancy reagan and we'll conceptually talk about the just say no mm -hmm. program that, from the mid 80s and kind of the zeitgeist of the time so it was like right. during that era and i even that i think was really well intended i think nancy reagan was a really sweet woman actually who had it, it, it wasn't malicious at all. And it, so it comes from that place of well-intended, but it doesn't quite land. And now it's changed even more rapidly because of the internet. Right. right. So in 1986, 80, you could go in and lie to kids and <laughs> right. kind of like say whatever you wanted, but now they have Google, right? right. So they have they, their cell phones. Yeah. They can, yeah, they they can, can fact, fact check, check you in yep. the moment. And it's, it's interesting because a couple of years ago I had a, a situation where I was presenting to a private high school to the seniors and, uh, and early on in the, in the session, a student, he he asked. He said, "Does does does cannabis cause lung cancer?" Mm. And I kind of usually when that question comes up really early, it signals to me that someone has done their own research on that and they want to kind of get a sense of it. So I was just really straightforward. I said, "You know, we don't have data right now that shows that. Uh, we 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 show that with chronic use, there is an increased in kind of." you know, lung infections and people get sick more and they have a mm -hmm. cough and uh, things like that. There's chronic bronchitis that can occur, but we don't have data around that shows it causes lung cancer per se. I said we may in the future, especially with people who are smoking concentrates a lot in, in, in a chronic way. We don't know exactly what that's going to entail, but right now that's where we're at. And, and it was really interesting. So after the, then we had the, the whole session, there was really good discussion, good conversation. 
And at the end, he came up, and a lot of students sometimes have questions after, and they'll talk to me. And he said, hey, I, I asked you that question to see if you were full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's an interesting, that, that kind of testing the waters out to see, can I trust this person? Where are they at? And I also would say, if you critique the Nancy Reagan, just say no, it doesn't mean that you're just say yes. Right. Right. That there, there's people think that, that I'll, I'll, well, you're giving permission or being condoning this type of thing. Not at all. You know, it's, it's really important to think, to, to, to holistically think critically about this entire issue. Um, but if we go in, you know, with, you know, uh, you know, fire and brimstone, and, and that's all the only approach we're going to take, it's generally not very valuable. Um, and, and that said, I have concerns about young people, especially adolescents, using high-potency cannabis products and sure. d- smoking dabs and other things. I mean, there's issues with that, I think, that are very real that we need to critique and think about especially at that age, especially with the new emerging research about the brain and brain development and mm-hmm. the different and the, and the new products around cannabis, more potent products. So it's, it's something we, we have to think about and can't get completely dogmatic about. Yeah, know. definitely. I, uh, several points to that one, the, the sort of false dichotomy of, well, if you're not just say no, then you're just say yes. Yeah. Like, absolutely. I've felt that so many times in trying to present about yeah. cannabis or anything. And, it's it's strange because you're you're sort of as an educator you're battling these different sort of different sides of the issue. <clears throat> yeah. You've you know you're trying to help people understand that you know the the just say no programs and everything. I think I agree with you that they're birthed from a um a, a noble place. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I just had a daughter. There's all sorts of things now going through my mind about what she's going to experience when she grows up, um, and it, it gets you really worked up and makes you want to change things and yeah. and um, affect the world in a way that um, you know makes it uh, how you would like it to be for your children. And everyone has different ideas of what that looks like, and and so sometimes you you get into these sort of um, abstinence-based, prohibitionist-based um, yeah. perspectives. Um, you know, because you would prefer to see a world where those things just aren't there. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that's just not the reality that we live in. Um, yeah. And I think that's where harm reduction becomes so important uh, yeah. because uh, the truth of the matter is, is that s- people are going to experiment with all sorts of things, in- including drugs. And it's far better for them to have access to credible information honest education and be able to make well-informed decisions about right. that use than to get a perspective that basically says, just don't do it. And then they don't know what to think or believe when they're confronted with information. Right. And then they have to make ill-informed decisions. Um, and so, you know, that piece um, I encounter regularly. And, but, but then there's the, the other side, the sort of in the cannabis world um, that I find myself working primarily in now um, you know, I'll give lectures where I get pushback from the, um, sort of pro cannabis groups as well. <laughs> yeah. Cause they're like, what do you mean? You're not willing to say that cannabis is safe. And it's like, well, in depending on what you mean by cannabis use, you know, it, it can be pretty safe. <laughs> Um, but the points you made about these new products, uh, that's something I bring up a lot. The data that we have on 
cannabis flower use mm. is one thing. And that data seems to suggest that cannabis has a pretty high safety profile. Um, you know, you're not going to cause any sort of physiological overdose. Uh, it's impossible to do physically. Um, but we don't have that same sort of track record or data sets on concentrated extracts, yeah. um, infused foods um, of the sorts that we're seeing now. Okay. There's always been like brownies yeah. and, and things sure. like that. But um, I mean, now we're just seeing any type of food you could imagine under yeah. the sun are being made with cannabis and not just cannabis flower, but with these extracts. Yeah. And and in some of the interviews I'm going to do later for the podcast, we're actually going to talk to some extraction chemists and mm-hmm. um, as well as uh, folks that work in the testing laboratories. And one of the issues that we're going to discuss is how the manufacturing of cannabis extracts sometimes changes the chemistry, the original chemistry that was in the plant mm-hmm. to produce novel products. Mm-hmm. So not only are you creating a new product, this you know, concentrated resin um, that people are eating or inhaling. Um, But you're also changing the chemistry. You're creating um, chemicals that people weren't getting exposed to before. Right. Um, And so that's super fascinating to me. I don't have a stance one way or the other of whether, (laughs) you know, smoking extracts or eating extracts or anything like that is more dangerous or not than flour. I think probably it is, honestly. (laughs) Most likely it's probably not that great to be heating and inhaling thick resins into the lungs, Mm. period, no Mm. matter what it is. Um, But that data set just isn't there. And uh, so Mm. extending that safety profile from the cannabis flour to extracts is... um, I'm seeing a lot of that right now, and it seems like uh, there aren't a lot of people really questioning that, of extending that safety profile. Well, extending the safety profile also to, well, it's a cannabis product that's related to the flower. What's it? How does it show up for a 15-year-old who eats 100 milligrams of THC in an edible, right, psychologically? Right. How does that show up? And, And not only, one, you're talking about novel products with concentrates, but it also the how that alters the entourage effect and how all the cannabinoids work together in the system and the biological system. All that is part of it, which we can't even, we're, we're not quite there yet in our level of understanding. Oh, right. Yeah. And, and what I would say with this, it's like, there's nuance to it, right? There's nuance to this entire conversation around cannabis, but people love things in kind of, we're in this time where it's kind of like, I, you know, we get our information from a headline on social media, let alone going to an article that wrote about that came up with that headline and then let alone going to the research article that informed that pop culture article. It's not really happening. Everything is kind of like this, you know, we're getting information from headlines and memes. Just yesterday, my daughter was like, Hey, did you know Joe Rogan's running for president in 2020? I was like, that's not happening. She's like, I saw a meme about it. I'm like, Oh my gosh, (laughs) please do not get your information from memes. And I do not think that's true at all. I've heard nothing about that. So it's like, it's just interesting what I have found, and I talk about this quite a bit whenever I present to whatever age group, I talk about confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. And I say of a confirmation bias essentially is we, you know, we seek out and find information and research that already confirms our pre-existing beliefs and ideas about something. And we do this politically. We do it with a lot of things. Cannabis is really prominent with that. What I found that people who are really pro are only pro, and it's really hard for them to really hear so it doesn't surprise me that people get mad at you. It's hard for them to hear or be exposed to other information. And the people who are really anti 
are like, yep, should be schedule one federally, should be prohibited, no one should ever use it, has no medical application, et cetera. So the confirmation bias people step into around this topic, I think is really prominent. Um, but we're, we do it, we, we do this with so many things. So like, like most things, it's not black and white, right? There's complicated aspects to it. And that's for me, when I do any kind of education specifically when I'm doing it with like high schoolers or, or college, young college students, I ask them to really think critically about health and wellness and who they are as people. That to me, it's like, I have this flow chart that I have, um, if you're making a decision about substance use and it's mm. just all these questions that no one ever, I don't think a lot of times we're asking young people to think about, you know, what are, where am I at mentally, physically, and socially in my health right now? How will this decision I'm making impact that? What's the purity? What's the dosage? Uh, who am I going to be with? What's the, what's my mindset going into it? What's the setting I'm going to be around? What would the people in my life who love and care about me feel about the decision I'm making? Uh, what impact could this have on my life in general, good, bad, or indifferent? Like just, just run through a series of questions for them to really process this and think about it. Because so much of this now, we have to keep encouraging people to think critically about their decision-making and their life and their health, you know, and not just kind of get on a team and say, that's the team I'm on, I'm going with it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it, um, it relates to this ongoing issue that our society is really... Str- has always struggled with, but now in this world of the internet and information being so accessible and communication being so easy, this sort of, um, um, sort of, um, uh, tribalism <laughs> jumping onto teams, <laughs> yeah, yeah. whether it be with cannabis or politics or whatever, whatever, there's just a ton of this going on right now where it's like, I, I find my, my little, um, community and I stay within that community. I yep. get all of my information from that community. And it creates this echo chamber effect oh my gosh, where, you know, it just reinforces more and more and more of the belief systems that have been adopted by this group. And um, it's it's concerning as an educator to see that because, um, you know, one of the things that I, I try to help teach people about in uh, some of the classes that I do on cannabis is how to evaluate research papers. Um, Mm -hmm. Because I realize, uh, like you mentioned earlier, people are looking at headlines or there's an, uh, uh, an article that talks about some study and they've only looked at the headline or just looked at the abstract and haven't evaluated. Well, how the methodology? Yeah. What was the sample size? (laughs) Exactly. Really, really, really basic stuff. And, and it's tricky because, there is some amount of practice and training you need to yeah. really Agreed. dissect research papers. Yeah. It's, it's not straightforward. However, there are some basic tools you can take into it to kind of quickly evaluate whether a research paper is full of shit or not, yeah. basically, yeah. you yeah. know, and, and some of the things you just mentioned, sample size, um, the basic methods, like, was this based on survey research? Is mm-hmm. it a clinical trial? Like what's yeah. how, you know, um, so, all of that is is something that I think there needs to be more focus on broadly in schools. I think of go how to go to primary sources yeah. and evaluate the content yeah. and and the claims being made from those. Well, if anything, we're moving away from that on the college campus. Really, right? The college campuses are going completely toward a lack of critical thinking, toward uh, much more 
echo chamber kind yeah. of dynamic. And, and now, you know, Google, YouTube, et cetera, feed us what we already like, right? So our confirmations are being, our, our biases are being further confirmed if we don't do, you know, if we, if we don't clear our browsing history over the course of a week and you go on YouTube, everything you like is already there, right? So you're fed this. So you, you exist in that echo chamber, chamber even further, not just who you surround yourself with, but your online world. Uh, feeds that a little bit as well but it, it's it's hard you know like a lot of times on the campuses now people are afraid to offend people mm. or to have a different opinion especially if it's around you know sometimes considered controversial topics it should not be that way there there's a report from yale in 1974 called the woodward report and part of this talks about when we limit someone's ability to speak their mind and to give a perspective, we not only cut off their ability to say it, we cut off our ability to hear it, and it mm -hmm. further helps us clarify our own values, what we, where we're at on a topic to really have to wrestle and grapple with the different perspectives on it. I'm very, very concerned with, it's getting a little better, I think it was worse about a year or two ago, but with the, on college campuses, the shutting down of certain speakers, um, you, you know, you know, especially if they lean like to the right of center at all, and mm -hmm. um, this kind of throwing out and just calling people Nazis and things like that, when it, it really diminishes the meaning of the word Nazi. <laughs> right. So yeah. I, you know, we're seeing that. I, I, I think a lot of people have woken up to that in the last year to say, wait a minute, this we we can't, we have to allow different perspectives and opinions, and it, it's how we learn and grow. And it's how young people build resiliency too and understanding yeah, absolutely. instead of just, I'm going to shame you because we have a different view or, on, or perspective on something. It's not going to help them in the long run in life. So, uh, you know, when we train, when we kind of, that's big macro stuff, when we filter that down to like talking about cannabis specifically, yeah, it's, it's really hard, I think, for people to sometimes get out of their own way and get, see something from a different lens. Yeah. 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 No, absolutely. And it's, you know, you have more direct content contact with universities than I do these days. Mm -hmm. So that's something I, I value your perspective a lot mm -hmm. um, on that. What's what's going on? Um, it's it's really disappointing because it's it's the antithesis of what a university is supposed to be about. Totally. Totally. hundred um, percent. I mean, really, the whole idea of of going to a university or a college is about exploring ideas mm -hmm. and and trying to um develop yeah. intellectually yeah um and absolutely. yeah and there's there's no way to do that if there are limits on what can be discussed and and wrestled with and uh when i was when i was going through high school we actually learned debate yeah. and i thought that was a very valuable skill set um, because it taught me to not take information personally mm -hmm. that conflicts with any beliefs or preconceived notions that i have it's just like well, no, like, just try to work through this, understand um, what the argument is, what the points for and against mm -hmm. are, and, and try to come to some common ground if possible. If not, yeah. that's fine. Yeah. You, you know, and, and it encourages you to find people that think differently than you and to have those conversations. Yeah. And I don't, I'm not aware if debate is still taught very much in high schools or not, but mm -hmm. my experience doing guest lectures and that sort of thing is that it, it doesn't seem like that way of thinking is, is being taught very much in schools um, mm. because um, there is this very reactionary um, effect when talking about hard subjects yeah. um, that people just really want to shut down yeah. and, and don't want to hear it. 
Well, we, one good example of that I saw recently, Andrew Yang is running for president as a Democrat, and he was on Ben Shapiro's show. And they talked, they had an hour conversation, and Ben Shapiro is a conservative uh, speaker, and um, he has a background in law. He's really very sharp guy, and Andrew Yang is too. It was so refreshing to to listen. I downloaded it and listened to it because I had to drive somewhere for work, and I downloaded a bunch of podcasts and checked it out. It was so good because Andrew Yang has different ideas. Ben Shapiro would push back on some of those a little bit, but in a really like thoughtful way. And then at other times he would say, I totally agree with you on this point. I read this in your, in whatever writing you did. And I completely agree with you hundred percent on this. So they'd find these areas where they totally agreed and others where they completely feel opposite, but we're able to actually talk about it. It was so refreshing to see. I'm like, thank you. This is, this is what we need. And Ben Shapiro said he's the only democratic nominee that has agreed to be on his show. Wow. No one will talk to him. Right. So this kind of, it's a, it was awesome. And I just think I, but when I talk to people in my life and world, whether it be, you know, friends of mine, people I play basketball with family, people randomly, I, I talk to in the sauna, right? At <laughs> yeah. the YMCA. Well, people, I think people are wanting this. They want like rational conversation. They want to be able to like, they don't want to have this, like this wild contentious yeah. thing all the time where people are Get, you know, tr getting into a tribal dynamic where it's getting even violent around politics. They don't like it. I think the majority of people value being able to have conversation. So it's a, it's a weird thing that it's, I think part of the polarization that's occurred is, is like, it's bigger than it seems bigger than it actually is probably through social media yeah. and other ways that pop culture media reports on things. So um, anyway, yeah, it's an inter interesting time. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Mm. Well, going back to, your experiences um, doing uh, drug education with mm -hmm. students and everything. What are some of the main questions that you often get um, mm -hmm. from high schoolers, college students, or you know even beyond that? Um, what are yeah. what are some of like the top three that you usually get hit with repeatedly? Lately, uh, if it's high school, I did a little tour in Northeast Oregon. I went to different high schools and did community, some community coalition trainings and stuff. But man, they really want to talk about vaping a lot. Really? Yeah, they want to talk about Juul. <laughs> Dueling. They want to talk hmm. about uh, vaping nicotine. That was a huge topic. Is it is it safe? Is it safer than smoking? You know, that was that's a big one on the minds of high schoolers. And I hear that from a lot of people, administrators who work at high schools too. They want to talk about it. I think that's a big one. And I think specifically with cannabis, they're a big question, you know, that college students always ask is why is, why is it illegal on a federal level when alcohol is legal and promoted there? There's a yeah. lot of wanting to discuss c cannabis compared to alcohol. That's a very big one. Um, I think too, uh, another thing that people are curious about is like related to alcohol and college life, kind of what is reality versus what is the perception of reality? Mm. Like what is the media feed us about that? It's a right. question. And then, um, you know, the, uh, yeah, those are, those are kind of, I'd say some of the biggest questions that I'll get. And then also people want to know, like, what are the health, what are some of the possible health outcomes and challenges with cannabis that's a big one yeah yeah that's that's one i encounter a lot is just mm -hmm. what's the reality behind the health risks right. um right and I, I i get questions a lot too about um uh, medication interactions lately mm -hmm. um especially around cbd too oh, now that yeah. um yeah. the cbd industry is kind of yep. 
blowing up. Um, a lot of people are wondering about that. Um, the the vaping thing is is really interesting because I mean, there's the nicotine side, but definitely directly affects the yeah. cannabis side yes, too. Definitely, um, definitely. It's it's something that has been on my mind for a while because um, there are different ways to vaporize cannabis, and like these vape pens are so popular now. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're not all the same. <laughs> Very different. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're all yeah. way different. Um, the oils in them are different. Um, mm-hmm. But I think there's a consumer perception that they're all basically the same. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and back to your question, I would say, by the way, by the way, when I do like trainings, like faculty staff trainings or co- community groups and stuff, I think some of the biggest questions I get asked about recently too is around opioids. Mm. What's going? What's up with the why are we hearing so much about the opioid crisis? What is happening with that? So we'll we'll get into that conversation. Um, that's a that's a big one. Does that ever connect over to cannabis? Because I know there's a lot of discussion now about yeah. how cannabis use might affect opioid use. Yeah, you know that there was that study that was published in JAMA Journal mm-hmm. of the American Medical Association, which did show that in states where they had medical laws, it showed that opioid deaths were rising everywhere, including in states that have medical cannabis laws but that they weren't rising at the same rapid rate in states where they did not have laws so so i it's an interesting thing when you again that comes back to how you read data and how you because i then you'll you'll hear people say well medical cannabis prevent prevents opiate is preventing the uh, prevention tool for the opioid crisis well it was still they're still they were still going up but just not as this at the same rate it but do i think like you know, if you compare looking at oxy, you know, some of the, some of the compounds that we have um, medically for opioids and then some of the ones on the street that people are getting, and then you have the mixing in of fentanyl, they're finding in so many compounds now, um, you know, comparing that to the safety profile of cannabis flower, it's, you know, for sure, you'd have to say, hey, if someone can get relief and they're not using an opioid, but using cannabis, I think they're, you know, most people who study this in any kind of honest way would say, yeah, from a harm reduction model, for sure. Yeah, and I, yeah. I think that's the important point from a harm reduction model because yeah. uh, yeah. I've gotten pushed back on on that topic mm-hmm. um, before. There's a there's an opposition against uh, what's perceived as just drug replacement, right, right, um, right. and and it gets back to this um, perspective of just wanting people to not do drugs versus trying to deal with the fact that like, well, that's just not the way things are. Um, but I've, I've encountered a lot of people that are really opposed to the idea of replacing one drug from another, even, even when talking about the safety profile. And that concerns me because, um, the safety profile of these drugs are so different. And especially with cannabis flower, um, the cannabis safety profile is so high that, you know, if if that's a way, even if it's just a stepping stone towards right. a, a lifestyle that is safer and more supportive of a person's um, well-being, mm-hmm. um, I, I don't think we should shut those conversations down just right. because it is, you know, sort of replacing one thing for the other. And it's, I think it's important for people to understand that if someone's using cannabis to get off of opioids, it's not like they're 
doing the same sort of drug replacement therapy with opioids that happens in a lot of addiction recovery programs, right. that sort of thing. Talking it's, like buprenorphine and methadone. Right. And, yeah. and there's, there's a whole series of issues around sure. that. That, Absolutely. you know, it's like you're not really getting someone off of opioids. You, and the idea yeah. is you try to make it easier yeah. to, you know, yeah. to, to move away. But I think it's important for people to understand that those are two very different things, using cannabis yes. as some sort of replacement or... Um, uh, a, a way of, of moving out of, of opioid addiction. It's very different than, yeah, trying to use methadone or, or right. something like that. It would be like, I'm trying to quit eating a gallon of ice cream every day, so <laughs> I'm going to eat a pint of ice cream for a while and then move to frozen yogurt And then, versus I'm trying to not eat a gallon of ice cream, so I'm going to eat an apple and a pear and get my <laughs> sugar that way. <laughs> so, yeah. But yeah. It, it's a dip, it, it is interesting. So I'll get questions about that too. So when we're talking about opioids, it will sometimes have a conversation around what are your thoughts on methadone and buprenorphine and, and my thoughts on it are, are again, we're, we're, we're trying to systematize something that's a very individualized process. Yes. So if yes. somebody, if it works for that person over there to take low dose methadone for, a, who knows, maybe, 20 years I have no idea right however long and they are not using heroin and they have a job and they are generally function right like how who am I to say no to that or you should do this or that like it's a, it's such, or you want to go cold turkey and go through that and see how that works out for you and move through it or maybe you transition to something else it's really you know I, I think what supports a person matters and there's all kinds of issues that go into it right mm -hmm. if, if someone is say went through a treatment program, but then went right back into the community with all of the same folks and triggers and everything. So maybe a medical assisted process with some, that person may help uh, a little more than someone who isn't going to have those same external triggers around them. Right. Right. So even stuff like that, you have to play, like think about it and put into the equation instead of like, Hey, this is what we do. Yeah. Well, yeah, it gets into what you were saying before this sort of personal inventory yeah. to take of yourself and evaluating your relationship with substance use and um, trying to really critically think about the decisions you're making, how they affect your personal well-being, um, the goals that you have for your own life. Right. Um, right. And this this gets to something I really wanted to discuss with you, what your perspective is on, on, in terms of cannabis of, uh, you know, when does... Um, cannabis use become cannabis abuse, uh -huh. and how and and what what tools can people use to evaluate their own cannabis use, like yeah. and and to perform that sort of inventory exercise to evaluate whether it's actually helping them in their well being or or whether it's it's limiting them in some way. Yeah, I think uh, there's a couple of things I think that people can do one, especially for younger people, see if you feel pressure to use and where that pressure comes from, if it's internal or external, or did your friend group sort of form based around cannabis and now you feel pressure to use it, even though maybe your relationship has changed with it and you don't enjoy it as much, but you feel like to keep that friend group, you have to do it. That's a good touch point for it. Looking at your actual experience, like you and I have talked about like people journaling and things like that. If you find yourself getting anxious and nervous almost every time you use, mm -hmm. really thinking about one, your dose, how you're using it, the form and what's going on there, why, um, that's a that's a one that you can really think about. I also think about replacing healthy behaviors with cannabis use, right? So, I, hey, I was going to 
I have a bunch of homework that's due tomorrow. I'm just going to like smoke a little bit and then I'll work on it. And then you smoke and you're like, oh, I'll just get up early and do it in the morning. Right. That's a good one to catch that and say, wait a minute, hold on. Or I was going to go, it's a beautiful day out. I was going to go outside and take a bike ride with my friend to the park and we we're going to throw Frisbee for half an hour and do some push-ups, and then go home. Right. Instead I sat around, I smoked bong and now I, and then I played video games, like really thinking about like, are you replacing something that's, you know, healthy for you? Uh, with something that's maybe not and is cannabis a pivot point in that decision making process or in, in that in that outcome i think those are all good areas you know the question between use and abuse gets really tricky um because we it's really hard to standardize so with alcohol right now for example we could say someone could say well what is adult responsible use of alcohol and you can give all these things around risk reduction and never letting your blood alcohol content get above 0.06 <laughs> and drink make sure you're hydrated and drinking water you never drive a car things like that right we we know this right we have a number on it really around bac essentially not letting that point of diminishing returns right 0.055 to 0.06 that's where beyond that you're going beyond the buzz point we can really put that as a demarcation that gets tricky with cannabis right because it's almost impossible what's the terpene profile when was it harvested were, were the trichomes amber color or were they cloudy right are now is it more sedating because there's more cbn and the thc started to degrade based on when the person harvested it regardless if it's a sativa or indica uh what if the thc level is 15 percent versus 25 percent do you take is it one hit or two hits or 10 or one hit of a Concentrate, it's almost impossible to quantify that based on all these factors that are playing into it. So I love this question. I'll ask young people particularly, especially if I've, I used to teach a class like for conduct, if students got caught smoking cannabis on ah. campus. So I know they're already have experience with it or use it. I would ask the students, what does adult responsible use of cannabis look like? What if you had to describe that to someone? And that is a tough question for people to answer because it's complicated. It, you, it's harder to put this like quantifiable number on it. And so again, it's looking at it from kind of these different personal factors and yeah, it's, 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 it's a very complicated one, I would say. Well, it's, it seems like, um, it, well, first of all, it's great to hear you just rattle off really quickly, all <laughs> of those nuances around yeah. cannabis use. Um, because it, I, I don't know, especially for people that either don't use cannabis or um, just don't have a lot of experience with it. Mm -hmm. A lot of people aren't aware of those nuances. Yeah, they don't I know. know. I just railed that off too quick. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, but that was perfect. Because another one I would add on top of that is um, every person's biochemistry is different too. Right. So trying to define, and and this works with alcohol too, but it's it's not quite as subtle as it is with cannabis, I guess, but, um, you know, the, the tone quote unquote of your endocannabinoid system, yeah. uh, changes, uh, you know, the way that you're going to, uh, react, uh, to consuming cannabis. So how are your cannabinoid receptors being expressed? What are the levels of endocannabinoids in your system? You know, the list goes on and on. Yeah. And something I, I'm, what I find really, really interesting about this, I think that, with cannabis, it's really pushing this conversation about drugs and um, what responsible drug use looks like. Um, all of these little these these nuances around substance use, pushing them to the forefront of public discussion because mm. 
um, these nuances go far beyond cannabis. Yeah. Uh, all sorts of, of substances, you know, mm. are plagued by the same sort of problematic nuances that make it very, very difficult to quantify what problematic use looks like right. or what at-risk behavior looks like. You know, with cannabis, um, I mean, not with cannabis, with alcohol, um, when you look at alcohol use and behavior, you see a more or less linear progression that the more you drink, the more impairment you'll experience, and that can be measured fairly um, fairly accurately. Um, but with cannabis, it's really confusing um, because, for instance, if you're um, if you just use cannabis every now and then, you're going to be far more impaired than someone who's a chronic user right. who um, uses cannabis maybe every day, and their baseline is having you know some uh, small amount of cannabis in their system. Right. Um, and I know this is causing a lot of problems in states that have legalized cannabis in terms of trying to figure out um, how to regulate drugged driving. Right, because you could test nanograms per milliliter of blood, but it, if someone's chronic, they may not be impaired in the moment, but they're going to read way higher than someone who never smokes but is impaired in the moment. Right, like, and then you get into social justice issues and all sorts yeah. of things of like, yeah. at what point do do users that are behind the wheel of a car need to um, be charged with a DUI or go mm -hmm. to jail, have their license revoked, whatever? Um, you know, but I, but I'm interested to see how as we tackle these issues, how it relates to things like psychedelics, mm -hmm. um, even things like cocaine, uh, all sorts mm -hmm. of other other yeah. drugs that um, are being used in our society right. um, all the time um, by different people. Um, a lot of times it's more quiet than it is with cannabis, yeah. um, but yeah. it's happening. And it's something as a society we really have to figure out what is our public health approach right. to substance use broadly because the alcohol model right. in my opinion just isn't going to work um yeah it's it, yeah you're right it's very it is very different and i think especially looking at young people where there is some maybe curiosity and other things like this i, I don't know and i when i you know for me my opinion if someone said what is your opinion on high schoolers or teens using anything i'm like don't if you, yeah. you know, that would really be my advice. This whole message now, a lot of you are talking about this sort of this delayed use message. A lot of data, we see it with alcohol and we're seeing it with cannabis too. Like the younger you are when you start something, the worse the outcomes are. For yes. It. So we've got to look at that as a kind of as a public health uh, uh, approach to say, hey, I, I don't I'm not necessarily going to come at you with this hard prohibition message but i it like if i once i get rapport with younger people and they trust what i'm saying i i and they if i'll, I'll talk about that with them and i'll mm -hmm. say look like with data we have now I, I think a lot of people are sort of pumping the brakes on this and saying hey wait a minute when the young if you're a teenager please abstain from everything if you can the longer you wait to ever try anything the better the outcome will be with it and you don't have to try it right like that's mm -hmm. the thing too right. you might be 20 and say i don't i'm not interested i don't need to do this but it's it's different the younger you are you think of yourself at age think of yourself at 13 14 or 15 years old like i try to ask people to walk through that exercise think of what the clothes you were wearing the bike you were riding who, <laughs> who you were in that moment you didn't know yourself that well you know you don't know yourself that well at that time you don't have a, a ton of self-awareness and 
physical development, social, emotional, mental development. It's a sensitive time. So to throw in a really intense experience, whether it be from a cannabis concentrate or too much of an edible or they didn't know what they were doing and ate, you know, four grams of psilocybin mushrooms or something and had an adverse response psychologically to that. Like there's risk with that. It can be an exacerbating event that can cause and lead to more of a psychological, an adverse psychological reaction for people at those eight. So I, I think like us being able to have that conversation with, it's a, it's a delicate thing to say, I want you to be empowered and really understand this topic because I have data in front of me that says, X number of teens are doing these things already. So we need to empower them to think about that. Yet we don't want to just say, yeah, you're going to be the, the message of you're going to do this anyway. So be safe is a terrible message. Yeah. It's completely putting out an expectation that this should be happening and people are going to do it. It's more like my line around this is, you know, you, you may be around this or you at some point later in life, you may try these certain things. So to have a really strong knowledge base and critical thinking skills around it is really important and empowering. And you also may be around it. So being around someone who maybe is engaging in something in an unsafe way, maybe it, it, you could help them. Right. So it kind of has a message of later mm -hmm. <laughs> and also a message of being a good bystander of you might be the person who can bring reason into a situation and maybe someone had too much alcohol and they really actually need medical support and you're the person to say, we have to call for help. Like this is, this has risen to a level of seriousness, you know, so being put it, putting them in a position of empowerment to help other people as well, I think is part of that overall thing. <clears throat> but it's, it's tricky, right? Cause you have all these social forces, especially with young people now, and we've had it since, you know, really people are being a little more open about it starting in about the early to mid nineties, mm -hmm. but we really see it now with movies that are really cannabis positive musicians. Right. That's kind of like every other song is a theme of that. We had that like with Cypress Hill and things like that in the nineties, but we, we really see it a lot. You know, we see people kind of joking about cannabis and mm -hmm. pop culture. It's taken on a different hue. So you have those social forces that young people are seeing and might think are kind of cool too. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a really good point. You've got movies like Pineapple Express, right, right. you know, <laughs> um, that you know it prevent it presents some downsides, but it, it's all in this, it's all in good fun. Exactly. Yeah. yeah no. It, no. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that's a really, really good point. Even if someone has like a paranoid experience with cannabis in a movie or something it's still usually presented in kind of a tongue in cheek kind of funny way. But in the real world, when you talk to people who have had a really adverse <laughs> experience with cannabis, they'll say it was one of those terrifying experiences, intense experiences of their life. Right. No, yeah. ab absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. like you said, um, a, an adverse psychological reaction to, uh, cannabis or, or any substance, um, it can be a trauma. Um, very much so for that person. And depending on whether that person has any um, genetic predispositions to certain uh, mental health issues, um, that's certainly a concern. Um, some of the research that's been maturing over the past several years and decades about like schizophrenia, right. you know, is showing that like, okay, some of the claims about cannabis use and schizophrenia were a little overblown. Mm -hmm. um, however, um, the data is seeming to um, consistently confirm the idea that if you have a genetic predisposition yeah. and you have um, experiences with cannabis or other substances um, that can cause 
some strong psychological responses that that can um, kind of flip that switch yep. um, earlier perhaps than it would have, or perhaps it wouldn't have gotten flipped at all. It's hard to say, right. um, but definitely, you know, it's the one way I, I think about it is sort of being born with a, a, a somewhat of a loose switch and it just takes the right mm -hmm. trauma, the right um, experience impact to just flip that switch on. And then, you know, you're moving down a, a path that you can't ever come back from. Right. And so that's, that's really important. It's like, you can always develop strategies to deal with, with different mental health issues. Um, but you know, once, once you've had that trauma and had to process it, I mean, that's part of your reality. That's part of your, your experience. Um, and what's your opinion as far as, um, how late, um, people should wait to experiment if they're, if they've decided they want to try it mm -hmm. and it's just a matter of waiting to that X amount of time, what does that look like? 21, 25? <laughs> I know you can't put a number on it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but if someone were to come to you and say, I've decided I want to do this, how yeah. long should I wait? It's a very tough question. Yeah. Because, you know, the legal in legal states, it's 21, right? So you could look at it from that perspective, from a brain development perspective, you could look at it at 25 which seems really irrational for a lot of people. Um, you know, Canada put out these federal guidelines a few years ago around risk reduction, harm reduction mm -hmm. related to cannabis. And they, they were pretty solid. I thought they were really interesting. Uh, but one of them, they said, it did talk about age. And it said if you could, you know, it recommended waiting till at least 18. Mm. Now, Gosh, I talk to 18 year olds and I think, whew, wait till you're 40. Uh, but I, <laughs> you know, but I, 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 I don't know. I, I don't know if I can give a good answer to that because everyone's maturity level is going to be different. And some of those biological factors, whether they be in their endogenous cannabinoid system or their own mental health, sometimes maybe we don't know, even know that at that point. Some of those, some of the, some of the mental health issues are really found to really full on come on in like late adolescence, early adulthood. Mm -hmm. So if, if again, if something like, especially a strong cannabis product is introduced at that time, could exacerbate things, who knows? So I think my advice would be one, starting off small, like with like low potency flour and having small amounts, whatever age you are when you first try to engage in this. Um, and don't start off by smoking dabs, you know, smoking concentrates. So I, I, I don't know. I don't know if I have a good number for it. I, I wish I did, but. Well, no, I think, yeah. I think that's, I think that's a perfect, um, answer that mm. just like everything else we've been talking about today around, um, health and wellness, it's a very personalized thing right. and having tools and strategies to evaluate yourself and to have support systems around you that can also keep you in check, yeah. that know you well enough to know what your desires in life are and what your typical behaviors are and everything that can that can help provide you honest feedback. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I really think that's probably the best you can do because, I mean, like you said, 21 is the age of, you know, the yeah. legal age in states that are legalizing. So really, most likely that's, Honestly, the longest anybody yeah. that's decided they're going to do it, that's probably as long as they're going to wait. Right. Um, if they wait that long. And um, so, I, yeah, I think the there's a catchphrase now in the cannabis world, the um, 
start low and go slow. Mm. It's usually used in the context of edibles, but I think broadly that's a good strategy. Yeah. Is if you if you've decided you're going to do this and um you know and you're you're totally inexperienced, start with low dosages, see how you respond. Yeah. Take it very slow. Yeah. Try to do that self inventory that you presented um yeah. fairly regularly. Yeah. Um you you touched on it before, but we haven't really expanded on it, the idea of journaling. Um, yeah. So I'm a big, big fan of experience journals mm. uh, when it comes to substance use, not just cannabis, but broadly, um, because mm. it's so hard to get past your own um, subjective experiences and biases that you develop mm. over time. You may have one experience, one ex- um one idea for yourself, expectations, whatever, at the beginning before you start trying to use a substance. But once that becomes part of your life, sometimes you forget what your thoughts, ideas, perceptions were like before and what you wanted and, you know, trying to keep that in check. And, I mean, when you're using cannabis, sometimes it's hard to evaluate more objectively how it's affecting you because it changes mm-hmm. your perception. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> and so journaling and, and taking good notes about dosages, how long it takes for something to take effect, yeah. the effects that you're noticing, and creating this data set for yourself so that yeah. you can evaluate it. I, I think and that's that's an important tool. I do too. And, and thinking about it in a way of like a lot of things, right? So it could be even if someone's, engaging in alcohol you know like, absolutely yeah, yeah oh, i had this experience and then i'm finding myself i'm eating tacos at one in the morning and i don't want to be doing that i care about my health right there's there's a lot of stuff we could really look at in our life in general i think um and whether that gets overtly di- marked down in a journal or just some self-awareness right. and self-assessment about food we eat or our movement in our li- physical movement and activity stuff like that yeah it's 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 an interesting, interesting one. Yeah, ar- ar- around that the self awareness piece, and to have, you know, to be able to to do that and say, wow, you know, I'm using cannabis way more than I want to be. Mm-hmm. And I've had students tell me that. I, I I've had students say, I basically start my day off smoking a concentrate, and I don't want to. I don't like it. It doesn't really even make me feel good, but it's just such a become such a way of being for me. It's hard for me to get out from under it. Or I stopped using cannabis and I thought it was helping me with my anxiety and I thought it was helping me with my sleep, but I realized it was the opposite. It was actually making me more anxious, intermittent anxiety with depending on how high I got at that moment. And it was actually my sleep, it was rough for the first week or two when I stopped using, but now it's way better. And I, I sleep deeper and I sleep long. I don't mm-hmm. wake up in the middle of the night, stuff like that. So it's interesting. Some of the things we think it might be doing for us, maybe it's not. So I think it's important, anything in life to take away something. <clears throat> to, it really helps you reevaluate it, you know? Yeah. I mean, what I th- role it plays in your life. I think something that um, is really valuable that, a lot of people that I know that use cannabis um, use this as a tool as uh, regular abstinence breaks mm-hmm. to try to have that yeah. that self-assessment of like, okay, I'm going to stop using for a week, a month, whatever. Yep. Try to see um, what a new baseline is like without that substance involved in, in yep. my routine. 
and and then make a decision after that of do I want to continue right. having that substance you know integrated into yeah. into my life or not and um and if I do is it different exactly yeah, yeah. It, it does the relationship need to change mm-hmm. um yeah, yeah absolutely um another thing that's that's been on my mind that you briefly touched on, but I wanted to make sure we talked a little more explicitly about it is the role that stigma plays mm. in cannabis use and how how people um, think about their cannabis use. Because from my perspective, a lot of times when we think about stigma, we think about it from um, like the abstinence prohibitionist uh, side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I I liked that you touched on the idea of like, oh, well, maybe my friend group was built around these yeah. behaviors, and now it, it's hard to figure out what, you know, my relationship is going to be with these people or these activities or whatever yeah. without that involved. Is that something you could uh, you could speak to a little yeah. bit, just about stigma and its role? Yeah, and, uh, and there's definitely anecdotal, like, case studies where I've talked to individual students about this kind of thing. There's a, It seems like there's a pretty common phenomenon for a lot of people if they use cannabis chronically after maybe a year or two, so something kind of changes for a lot of people where it doesn't show up the same it's not as fun it might Mm -hmm. they might get like wow i never used to get paranoid or have an anxiety response to cannabis but lately i am a lot especially in a social situation something Mm -hmm. like that so generally that's usually those cases that that will happen where someone will say i'm not enjoying this anymore in the same way but again so much of my kind of identity and friend group formed around this. We would get together and smoke a joint together, right? And bond and hang out. So now I don't want to be the one person who's not. Mm. And are they still going to be my friend? And am I going to be kind of missing out on something with them if I don't? And so I think that's I think that's very real for people. If, or feeling this pressure. Like I have a friend, so years ago, he's a musician. And he he's like, I, I every time I smoke pot, it's awful. I, I've had... I've smoked maybe 20 times. It's been terrible every time. And I'm like, (laughs) no matter what I do, if I take one hit or smoke a lot or whatever, I'm like, I don't gamble much, but I bet on the 21st time it's going to suck. Right. Yeah. Probably based on your endogenous (laughs) cannabinoid system, you know, all of it. So he, you know, it's just, but he felt pressure because he was in like an environment with people and the music that he was playing and engaged Mm -hmm. in that it was just cannabis was kind of around. And so he felt, like an odd person out not doing it. So he felt stigma by not doing it. Um, I don't know. So I, I think that that's part of it where, where people feel this pressure. It's, it's, it's not, and it's not like peer pressure, like you better smoke this or I'm not right. going to be your friend anymore. That's not how it goes. It's very subtle. And it's often the pressure we feel it kind of internally. I always, I just tell people, you know, if you know it's not for you and you know, it doesn't play a role in your life, just be chill and be confident in that decision. And when it's offered to you, just be like, oh, no, I'm good. No, thank you. And just be, but be confident in it and and don't make a big deal of it one way or another. And people are going to, if you're a, a good person and people want to be your friend, they're going to be, they're going to be your friend regardless. You know, if they're not because you don't smoke cannabis. That's a sign. Of- <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like who, whatever, you know, like move, yeah. move on from that relationship. But I, I don't know. I, I do. I just, I see that. And I, it, it does sadden me though, when I've seen that with people, because it, it, you can tell they feel this internal kind of angst around it of like, I don't know what to do. Yeah. yeah and, and 
we all build up these stories in our minds about what other people are thinking right. and what other people are thinking about us. Yeah. And and then we use those stories, whether they're based in reality or not, to project um, the future and yeah. to say like, well, if I make this decision, they're going to react this way. So I need to accommodate this or that or the other. Mm-hmm. And it's I think it's really, really important for people to feel um, empowered to um, kind of own that confidence in what they really, really want, and also mm-hmm. to recognize that um, w- what we build up in our minds about what people are thinking and, and how they're going to react and everything, that that is subjective. Yeah. And, um, and that really you don't know until you talk yeah and and you know and actually present this and and absolutely if someone's only your friend because you use cannabis well then you know they're probably not a great friend in the first place (laughs) um um, but you know i think that's it's definitely something that young people deal with um but i think it's something that a lot of adults deal with too Mm -hmm. in maybe slightly different ways um and possibly even talk about it less yeah than young people do um yeah yeah, we, we assign peer pressure or what I sometimes call peer influence to something that de- is, it only deals with 17-year-olds. And it's like, no, it, it's like people have a lot of this stuff throughout the lifespan. Right. I yeah. mean, we're conscious beings that, yeah. you know, regardless of what we look like on the outside, yeah. we're always processing and trying to understand. And yeah. um, there are certain elements of consciousness that seem like that don't change very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, throughout our maturation, the way we deal with information and things changes. The way we uh, handle our behaviors changes. But there's a there's a certain element there that we're, we're sort of kids forever. I think mm-hmm. in a, in a certain sense, yeah, um, in our minds, um, and it's it's something we have to be aware of and and um, check ourselves on a little bit. Um, yeah. Um, another thing that that you mentioned the the idea that people were using cannabis for a while and then all of a sudden it changed. I yeah. think one good example of that is uh, there's this, uh, there's a condition called cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. Right. Have you heard about that? Yep. Um, and the basic understanding now is that most likely what's... So to back up a little bit, to describe to people what cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome um, is on a really basic level, it basically means that when you use cannabis or ingest uh, certain cannabinoids, you get nauseous, very yeah. nauseous. Yeah. Um, and it usually affects chronic users. Mm-hmm. And sometimes what's, what's really, really interesting about it is uh, the people that are affected by this don't always realize what's happening at first. They develop coping behaviors, coping strategies, mm-hmm. like um, taking hot showers more frequently <laughs> right, right. Um, or whatever, different things to control nausea. And they just think, oh, I'm, you know, I'm high or I'm, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. You know, they don't necessarily think, oh, I'm nauseous. Right. Or, or they or use that, more cannabis because they, because they like, think it's going to help with the nausea. Exactly. Right. It's so like, it oh, exacerbates it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Cannabis helps nausea. So I'm just going to consume more. And um, it's... It's important to point out um, because one, as states have legalized cannabis and as people have become more open about their cannabis use, it's being found that this um, condition is way more prevalent Mm. than we ever thought it was. And it's just something that um, because cannabis was illegal 
people weren't talking to their doctors about their cannabis use. Yeah. It just wouldn't go there. Um, and now they're, they're being much more open about it and admitting like, yes, I experienced this. And um, it's important for people to understand that as you use any substance for a long period of time, it changes your biochemistry mm-hmm. and uh, chemical receptors and things um, that are associated with um, the responses you get from using that substance. And, and cannabis is no different. If you use cannabis regularly, yeah. cannabinoid receptors change. They tend to um, reduce in, in concentration in the body. Right. Um, and I think that's something that in the context of cannabis safety and harm reduction, everything that doesn't get a lot of attention right now is that right. for some people, chronic use um, at some point causes a change where cannabis no longer is therapeutic yeah. for them. And it may have been for a long time, yeah. um, potentially. And uh, I just want to make sure we get that message out there because I'm sure there are people out there right now that are struggling with that, that don't know what's going on. Right. And say, no, it, it always it's always helped. Um, that's not yeah. the problem. And it, it might be. Um, yeah. And it's another reason why abstinence breaks are really, really important. Yeah. Um, Self-awareness. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, this concept that you're talking about, you know, of changes that happen in the body when you do anything in a chronic right. way. It's, you know, I, I always talk, any talk I give, I talk about adaptation and adaptations we make in our body and the brain. The body is amazing at adapting. Um, the basic core example, when I talk about we're seeking balance and homeostasis all the time, I say, what happens when you get too cold? What involuntarily happens? You shiver, right? right? Keep kinetic energy moving, keep you alive. What happens when you get too hot? You sweat, right? So all the time, we are, our body is doing this delicate interplay to find balance. So when you, again, are using anything in a chronic way, and I know with cannabis, it's a little different because it's not necessarily affecting endogenous cannabinoids, but the cannabinoid receptors, right. right? Whereas like if someone's smoking, say a heavy stimulant use every day, whether it's methamphetamine or smoking crack every day, right? They're, they're going to have a reduction in dopamine, actual neurotransmitter dopamine mm-hmm. production because it's, there's too much being released at once. The body will adapt and say, whoa, we got to pump the brakes. We're going to produce less dopamine. Then they go off the drug. They have something called anhedonia, inability to feel pleasure because their dopamine is so depleted mm-hmm. once they go off that drug. So it's really easy for people to relapse. So I, I, I think it's important to think about that, like rem- remembering our body and brain does not know, does not differentiate and say, oh, that drug you got from your dealer. So yeah, we're going to create all these adaptations in the brain with that one. Well, you got that one from your doctor and it's a prescription. Oh, totally perfectly safe. Not at all the case, right? So if yeah. we, you know, there's adaptations when people take Prozac, there's adaptations for anything, any drugs that people take, whether it be common SSRIs or anything uh, so cannabis is no different than that when someone's using something in a chronic and consistent way there's going to be adaptations that are made created in the body um but we again if we assign if we have our confirmation bias that it is 100 percent safe that's it that's our view it's really hard for people to accept that, that yeah there can be adaptations or challenges that come up from it yeah no no totally and i mean we keep coming back around to this confirmation bias issue. Mm-hmm. How do we help people with that? Like other yeah. than clearing your browser history every time <laughs> you close the browser, yeah. um, what can people do to try to make sure they're, I, in some ways you can never get past your biases yeah. to it, you know, to yeah. some extent. Some are there for reasons and yeah, it's okay. Right. But yeah. What? I think it comes back to schooling. I think, 
coming back to our educational systems from young ages, teaching critical thinking and teaching that it's okay for people to have different opinions and there's not, it's okay. Just as a core, let's go there and have calm, rational conversation around things. So the civility around perspective, you know, but again, it's so hard with the, the internet's really created this dynamic. So it's people having, having to have, again, that we, could talk about self-awareness a lot too to understand that and look at their own stuff mm-hmm. and we all have blind spots you know everybody does we have to have humility around that and know we all have blind spots and we're gonna not see everything from every perspective but trying you know the more right. we can try that yeah yeah no yeah. totally yeah but yeah. we have to teach it we have to it's okay like we have to tell people verbally it's okay for this person to have a different political view than you and you can still talk and you can maybe even be friends. Right. Right. You know, cool. You know, and, and that it's just, we're, we're getting so far from that. When you look at some of the violence that's occurring politically around because people have different perspectives. I mean, we're talking globally Mm -hmm. all over, not just here, but everywhere. Yeah. 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 No, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, um, another thing I wanted to talk to you about is I know you've been working on a project called the Cannabis Classroom. Yeah. And so I wanted to make... Months behind. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's fine. I'm months, years behind on on a lot of my stuff, too. Um, But I I wanted to um, just uh, take some time to ask you a little bit about what what the Cannabis Classroom is and... um, and just yeah. anything you want to share about that? Yeah, you know, uh, it's a pretty common thing now where college is it's a it's an educational program targeted to college students. So colleges, it's pretty common now. They have incoming students coming to to campus and they send out like an online education module on alcohol or on Title IX is a big one, mm-hmm. or whatever else health topic, right? So there's a couple of products out there for uh, cannabis right now, but I just felt like it was time to, I wanted to make a product like that, like an, an online educational program uh, that would, it takes about an hour to complete that is just really getting into some of these issues we're talking about. Um, you know, as far as students thinking critically about their health and wellness, their social norms and identity development, uh, some on cannabis, obviously on cannabis science and health. Um, there, there's a section on like the plant. What is this plant? What are cannabinoids? What are these products from the plant? So uh, every section of it has a video that accompanies it. So there's a video, you know, some are, I have a great videographer who lives locally and we've done a lot of filming and vi- editing mm-hmm. and all this stuff. So every section has a video, but every, uh, every there's seven sections in it. So the hope was to have the demo ready by March. It is late May. And it's <laughs> not ready. So I want to say months behind. I'm literally months behind. I'm okay to admit that. It's all right. Uh, I have a, I've had a lot going on. It's really busy, and so is my partner in crime on this. So we're really, I think the demo will be ready in a couple weeks. And from there, I'll get it out to schools. I've had a lot of schools really express interest in it. And I'll get the demo out to, to schools. They can check it out, run mm-hmm. through it. I, I really encourage them, like, get it in front of students, see if it resonates with students yeah, yeah. and administrators. And then, um, you know, hopefully um, sell it to schools. My goal is to really have 20 member schools the first year. I don't I don't really want this to be massive. And, and then improve on it, iterate, mm-hmm. make improvements, shifts, and changes based on the feedback and data I get from those first schools. 
and then the next year really expanded out. So I think there's a need. I think there's a need for really straightforward, pragmatic education on this topic. And uh, the, yeah, there's just people. I, I went to a conference, a major national conference in January to kind of promote it and had a table and booth. And I know a lot of a lot of the people there because I've presented mm-hmm. at that conference like three times over the past 10 years and done one of their webinars for them for Canvas education. So I, there was a big, there was a lot of interest in it. People, a lot, I got a lot of emails from people that said, right when the devil's ready, send it to me. I want to check it out. So I feel, I feel a little bad, like they're waiting, but I, it's okay. You know, I mean, I want it to also be done right yes, and not yes. rush it. So that's, I'm also in that mindset. So, no, I, I think that's great. If you're going to, yeah put out a product like that you want it to be even though you want to improve on it over time yeah, you yeah. want the first iteration to still be quality yeah, yeah. and and something that's going to maximize yeah. as much value as you can yeah what are some of the um core topics that students yeah. going through that would encounter in that hour yeah um a couple of the main ones uh, you know, there's a there's an introduction where I do talk mm-hmm. about confirmation bias. I also talk about whatever because it's going to be a national product. So what, I said, whatever state you're in, this is relevant information for you, regardless of the law and where you live. There, this is good, important information for you to have understanding around. Um, so that's a major one. Um, and there's a whole section on concentrates and edibles, which is really great. And we get sort of a historical perspective on that during the concentrate section. We talk about different plants when they're in their natural form. And then when you concentrate isolated compounds out of that plant, mm. things change, right? right? So, you know, morphine from opium, cathinone from cat, et cetera, right? Salvinorin A from salvia plant. Right. We see when we concentrate an isolated compound out of a plant, the, the, generally the outcomes are worse. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, you can really relate that to cannabis. And then, um, you know, then there's a section on social norms and identity. So we, we talk about national data on college student use and what's really real versus what is the perception of use and talk about that. And also around who they are, that we're complex beings. We develop it as we develop our identity and that we shouldn't be limited to one thing. Like I'm a cannabis user. Right, right. right yeah. And then the la- one of the, the final sections, I just talk kind of briefly about health and wellness. I'm really, you know, some of the t- other topics I'm interested, I love su- talking about substance use, but I'm really interested in, you know, personal development. I do consulting work and uh, around like uh, how uh, our work affects our health and how our health affects our work and what goes out mm-hmm. on outside of our life affects how we show up at work and how we, you know, when we look at managers and how they uh, interact with, people who report to them. All of those things are really interesting to me. I do work around that. But around health and wellness specifically, you know, I, uh, there's a section of it where we, I talk about that, like, you know, thinking about, you know, being a healthy person, I think really creates an armor for us, even if we are encountering some substance use or we're encountering stress in our lives like we can navigate it differently and better when Mm -hmm. we're healthier so if we're physically active in our bodies if we're hydrated if we're eating healthy if we can manage our emotions and talk about our our emotional well-being with other people in an open way and the big one which i have been just studying relentlessly for two years that i love talking about is sleep Mm. and sleep health i i some of the new data on sleep and new research is pointing to so many relationships like with sleep and anxiety and that they're bi-directional, right? So you're not sleeping enough. You're, you're more likely to have an anxiety disorder. Now you're anxious. You're not going to sleep as well. And sleep related to growth hormone release, hormone balance in general for young people, all people, um, 
neurogenesis, new brain cell growth, mm-hmm. um, uh, Alzheimer's. They're seeing a huge connection between you know the amyloid plaque buildup in the brain and sleep deprivation. It's a massive topic, and I think when we think about our l- amount of time we're on screens at night and being exposed to the yes. blue light frequency mm-hmm. and the effect on our brain, and it's really impacting our sleep. We we sleep right now on average two hours less per night on a- in America than we did a hundred years ago. It's having a huge effect on mental health. It's a big effect on depression and anxiety, and you know we have pretty high sleep needs as, as yeah. humans and mammals in general. And I, I just think it's the sleep piece to me, it it's playing a big role in substance use. You know, it's playing a big role in mental health and our stress management, our physical health. It's, it's Absolutely. such a huge topic. So that's one that I've been really, really passionate about. I think if people are interested in just doing a deep dive on sleep, there's a guy, a researcher out of UC Berkeley, his name's Matthew Walker. And he was interviewed on Joe Rogan's podcast. It's really compelling. And he's also on a podcast from Dr. Rhonda Patrick, which oh, yeah. was really good and really deep dive into sleep. He wrote a book called Why We Sleep. And it's it's also, a, it's a great book around this too. But starting there, just listening to those podcasts, it, it, it will really spark you to think differently about it. I also, just so, sorry I'm ranting about sleep. No, go for it. But uh, I think with the sleep thing, what I try to tell people too is it's like nutrition. Like let's be really mindful of our nutrition and what our food and where it comes from and how we eat, et cetera. But it can also slide into obsessiveness <laughs> where then all of a sudden you can have a really unhealthy relationship with food. And so, you know, we have eating disorders, et cetera. So sleep is kind of similar. Like I'll, I travel sometimes, right? So if I go to the East coast and got to get up at eight in the morning or get up in the morning at 6am on the East coast, 3am here, I'm not getting a good night of sleep that night. And I just kind of wake up and go, okay, I don't, I don't drink coffee every day. I'll drink it today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. uh, I'm using this drug caffeine really systematically on that day. But I, you know, realizing like it's okay. Occasionally we're going to not get great sleep, but we, if we get overly obsessed with it, then it, it can start to really affect us. We go to bed, we start to get mental rumination. Mm-hmm. So let's put attention and effort into our sleep in a way we would like nutrition, but not an obsessive way. Oh, totally. Right? No, this is it's, this it's, is all resonating with yeah. me so strongly <laughs> for several reasons. I mean, one, my Ooh, wife baby. and I, yeah. <laughs> so my wife and I, we both have insomnia, um, mm. and we are both uh, pretty anxious people. Mm-hmm. So hearing mm. you talk about how sleep connects to anxiety is very interesting to me from that that side. And I know just being a a person that struggles with anxiety a lot, how that affects other areas of your life. Mm. Um, um, but also um, just having a baby and being chronically sleep deprived um, <laughs> for the past yeah. several months, um, I I have been thinking a lot lately. This is so perfectly timed because my wife and I have just both been talking a lot about how our perspective on the value of sleep has totally changed yeah. now that we've had a child um, because, you know, we really just don't have any control and so we're having to just roll with the punches day to day and get yeah. as much rest as we can. Um, but, you know, we're seeing the effects that that sleep deprivation has on other areas of our life, on yeah. on work. I mean, definitely, um, you know, I have several clients that I consult with helping them build out um, laboratories or production facilities, helping them with quality management in science context and that sort of thing. And um, I know that if I am sleep deprived and I go in uh, to a client's uh, place of business and, and try to work with them, I'm 
I get aggravated very easily. Yep. Um, very get very very irritable. Even when I don't, I don't have the self awareness to say, "Oh, I'm feeling irritable right now," yeah. and thus I need to be careful about my interactions with yes. other people. It's yes. just just happens. It's you just think you're going through your normal yeah. thing, and all of a sudden you're snapping at people, right? And not recognizing that, like, oh, this is. I'm tired, yeah. and and that's. I'm a biological this... organism. You know, I'm not <laughs> functioning opti- functioning at an optimal level. Yeah, and and yeah. when that goes on for too long, um, it really, really starts to have all sorts of other effects on the way that you just perceive the world. Yeah, absolutely. And um, there's a reason sleep deprivation is a form of torture. Yes, yes. I, I, it's you know I think about even like amphetamine psychosis where people are you know, on a three day binge with methamphetamine and they are in a really a, a rough place mentally at the result, as, as a result of that. It's part, part of it's the drug, but part of it's sleep deprivation too. Yeah. No one really thinks about that relating to that specific when someone's binging on stimulants that the two days of not sleeping is going to have an incredibly adverse reaction to your mental health. It, well, what's interesting too related to cannabis is it's found that cannabis can like kind of help people get to sleep maybe easier on the front end, but it's really disruptive to REM sleep. Yes. So it's more likely to, you're more likely to wake up in the middle of the night and not get like as deep of sleep and, and have, when you have REM interrupted, you get what's called dream pressure and it's likely more likely to wake you up. And the irritable thing, you're exactly right. There's something in business called the mood elevator and you can go on like Harvard business review and look this up. And it talks about like when we're in a place of anxiety and irritable place, like, Try to commit to doing no harm at work. So if you're a manager, <laughs> yeah. in those moments, having the self-awareness to catch it and say, I have a, a important meeting today. I'm going to push it if I can till tomorrow or something like that. Now, what's here, if we want to take this a little deeper, what's fascinating about it, there were some studies done uh, with two issues looking at food in the relationship to sleep and then uh, social isolation. So when people are sleep deprived, others perceive them as some, even if, if you take a picture of someone who's two or three days sleep deprived, people will say just by their body movements, how they're talking, their pictures, people will say, I don't know if I'd want to be friends with that person. Interesting. interesting, right? Wow. So, but the other thing is if I'm, they've done studies where they watch people who are sleep deprived do social interactions, your personal space gets much farther because you sort of, your amygdala is much more active. So you're on a little more heightened fear based alert place so you're skeptical of other people when so if i'm sleep deprived i'm walking around nervous of others i'm more i'm more skeptical of others i'm less likely to connect with others and my personal space literally gets distanced from other people so the social isolation piece which we know can is related to addiction Mm -hmm. and all these kinds of things when we're sleep deprived it plays into that the other thing which was interesting they, when you're sleep deprived, you have two hormones, ghrelin and leptin. Yeah. One of them relates to signaling that you're hungry. One of them signals that you're full. Well, when you're sleep deprived, you're, the signaling that you're full is kind of turned down and the signaling that you're hungry is turned up. Interesting. So you're more likely, you eat more when you're sleep deprived. And then a woman in the, I forgot where she's at in Europe, she's studied sleep for 25 years. She did a study where they told people they were, that what they, they kind of tricked them in the study. They said, we're basically studying whatever, like reaction time when you're sleep mm-hmm. deprived versus what, when you're not. But what they really wanted to study when they put them back out into the lobby, they had a spread of food, <laughs> healthy options, fruit, vegetables, yeah, stuff yeah. like, you know, healthier stuff. And then they had sugary stuff. And 
by far the people when they compared the people who are sleep deprived to not when they observe them through a two-way mirror people who are sleep deprived were way more likely to be grabbing sugar chocolate sweets stuff like that than like broccoli and the people who are, got enough sleep they're like pretty content to grab carrots and some dip or whatever yeah so the, how you eat and how much you eat is related to sleep deprivation as well so when this is where where your your mind gets blown when you start hearing this information about sleep because you're like wow this touches on so many things everything yeah it's like it's really wild you know it, it, and we just sort of this whole notion i remember if i'll sleep when i'm dead or it's like <laughs> we, we we consider it like a cool thing to like not sleep and there in the incidence of drowsy driving accidents compared to drunk driving accidents, it's way more. People die way more from drowsy driving accidents. But for every hundred dollars we spend on public service announcements and education on drunk driving campaigns, we spend one dollar on drowsy driving campaigns. Wow. Even though it's a way higher risk factor by far. And that's something I <laughs> um, I mean, I've known that driving while drowsy is as risky but that's something i i was mm -hmm. unaware of that it's actually a, a much yeah. greater well, I issue don't, i don't know if it's like experientially in the moment better or to be dr drunk than right. that's not what i'm saying but there's more uh accidents and death caused from mm -hmm. drowsy driving well wow. drunk driving well yeah i mean this is making my head spin in Sorry. a variety of ways because <laughs> i mean there's so many pieces to this that come back around to cannabis as well yeah. because yeah. Um, I mean, the, the rim stuff for sure that, um, you know, cannabis can help you get to sleep, but not necessarily keep you asleep, um, and can affect those rim cycles and everything. And it, and it depends. Some people report having, um, a totally opposite effect. Some people, yeah. um, say that cannabis keeps them asleep. I, right, I you know, right. but, um, definitely there's that issue there, but around um like the appetite signaling and everything i can't help but wonder how that might be connected to the endocannabinoid system right. uh, because we know that the endocannabinoid system is also uh, directly tied into satiation and right. um feeding responses um feeling hungry and that sort of thing i mean obviously um the side effect of the munchies you know brings that to the forefront when yeah. people consume high thc cannabis they tend to get the munchies um but there's been some really interesting research um that's shown um, that it's it's deeper than than just the munchies. There was a study I can't remember when it was done, um, but it was done with rodents, and they basically uh, created um, or they they had these rodents that I believe had their CB1 receptors, their cannabinoid type one receptors, um, knocked out. Mm. So uh, it was a knockout group, um, and they wouldn't have any CB1 signaling whatsoever. And what they found is that the rodents that were um, that were born that had um, these traits, um, they would never experience the um, need to feed for the first time, oh. and they would die. They oh. would die within the first 24 hours, 48 hours. Interesting. Um, and it led researchers to wonder how that relates to things like um, there are certain uh, forms of wasting syndrome associated mm -hmm. with infants yeah. um, where the infants are born. They just won't eat uh. and how that connects to the endocannabinoid system and CB1 receptor signaling and everything. And I would be really, I'd, I'm just unfamiliar with the research. I need to see if there's been research done on this, yeah. but I would be really interested to see how sleep affects cb1 receptor expression yeah. and endocannabinoid um um 
production and circulation in the body and, and yeah. all that signaling and everything and whether there's some interplay and um, yeah, just getting a broader picture on all of that. Well, I, wonder, I remember when you're saying that too, there was that, do you remember that diet drug that um, it suppressed, it, it had some, it suppressed, I think CB1 uh, receptors. There was something, there was a diet drug they pulled off the market because so people got, incredibly depressed when they would take really it. yeah but they think because it did something with the suppression of the endogenous cannabinoids um i don't it starts with an r i don't remember the name of the drug but people there was like a lot of suicides and people got really well, depressed and, yeah the, the yeah. cb1 receptors are um there's there's been a lot of interesting research done on um depression primarily depression and um, cb1 receptor influence and mm. there's actually been some mixed uh, results coming from that mm. of whether stimulation of CB1 receptors precipitates depression yeah. or or the opposite. Um, there seems to be some nuance there, but absolutely, mm. like if you were to just yeah. basically try to knock that yeah. out, yeah, um, you know, you're talking about a receptor type that is tied to all of these different yeah. aspects. It's not right. just hunger. It's, right, right. You know, it's your psychological well-being, all yep. sorts of things, your mood, um, and it's also been found that cannabinoid receptors tend to appear in partnerships with other receptor types. And mm. so um, it's now known that in um, certain parts of the brain, you'll have CB1 receptors that appear right alongside serotonin receptors. Mm. Um, and that's starting to come out with all sorts of other receptor types as well. And we're learning that influencing CB1 receptors is also going to influence these other receptor types and that there's some interaction going on mm. on the membranes of these cells and the way that these receptors are um, are being interacted with mm. and that you, you can't you can't just try to target a component of the endocannabinoid system to get a specific therapeutic result it's right. I mean yeah. in, in some sense you can but it's just not straightforward at yeah. all and I mean we're learning this across medical science yeah. um, I mean look at um, uh, drugs for mental health in the 90s and everything, what we've learned since then, like, oh, just targeting serotonin receptors is not the best way to try yeah. to treat, you know, depression and anxiety, although it helps some people. Um, yeah. It's not very effective. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I really want to see how... You just you just got me thinking about sleep now, just how, yeah. how it connects to all of this. And uh, another example of how not straightforward some of this is, is there was a, there was a study done, I think it was in France, uh, several years ago. And uh, basically a group created a pharmaceutical drug that disabled an enzyme that would normally break down endocannabinoids, mm. as well as a variety of other things. It was, uh, it was an FAAH inhibitor, um, which FAAH is an enzyme that breaks down fatty acids. Mm-hmm. And endocannabinoids are fatty acids. Um, and unfortunately what they found when they did that, um, the rodent models looked great. Everything Mm -hmm. seemed safe and good. So they moved to human trials. And when they did that, I know at least one person ended up brain dead. Wow. Um, they had to stop the trial and, um, you know, it, it caused 
a number of problems, obviously, um, mm. for participants, their families, uh, the researchers, and broader scientific understanding of the endocannabinoid system. It's like we have to be really, really careful yeah. about these pharmaceutical approaches of manipulating a single piece of the endocannabinoid system yeah. because it's connected to everything else. Right. And not just the endocannabinoid system. All of these physiological systems are interconnected. Yeah. It's a whole web. I mean, I, beyond all of this... Um, sort of health-related science education that I do. I do a lot of um, biology, ecology education stuff, and I, I teach the exact same lesson about ecosystems and, yeah. you know, that these organisms, it's an interconnected web of, yeah. of interactions, and you can't just affect something in isolation and think that it won't affect right. other pieces of the system. Our bodies are the exact same way, and these yeah. chemical systems are the exact same way. Yeah, you can't tug on a little thread over here and think it's not going to have an effect over there. Right, yeah. yeah. It's like it's... It, it is interesting and we have a system of medicine that I'll, i think we're it's great for trauma I, like as far as like i'm in a car accident i'm going to the yard ER. it's amazing right yeah but sometimes we, we when we get we have a lot of specialists in our medical system right yeah so i'm a foot specialist okay so but i'm not so my orientation is the foot not right really and, like and the really rest of the body and how it's affecting your nutrition or whatever so yeah, which we need. I think we need that, but to have that a little more balance where we can say you are a system. Yes. You know, and we need that. Yeah, I think there's there's a, a niche in our medical system for um, interdisciplinary approaches and connecting the specialists across the board yeah. um, to help gain some perspective. Um yeah. And and it seems like things are moving that way. There's a lot more talk these days about holistic healthcare, yeah. um, integrated approaches to medicine. Absolutely, yeah. Um, We're seeing more of that in cl- also, right? Like, I I like the integrated model. It's it's also like a very overt symbolism that the body and the mind are not that are that they are connected. They're yes. not disconnected, right? So it's like, hey, your physical stuff, you go here. Your mental stuff, you go over there. Nope, we're in, we need to be integrated. There, we're this is an organism. So yeah. I, I do appreciate that we're shifting toward that. I think it's good. It, it is really easy to just kind of bash like the medical system. And, it is. Yeah. And so I think there are challenges with it and there are some, there's really good movement in particular, some specific ways. So let's f- keep finding that healthy balance with it. Well, and, that's, that's another yeah. angle that I, I often get some hate from is um, it is easy to, bash the healthcare system to be anti-pharma yeah you know all of these things and i just i just don't think it's that simple um i i know a lot of doctors and nurses and um just so many different researchers that have helped develop all sorts of um natural products herbal medicines pharmaceuticals mm-hmm. across the board and you know early on when i was when i was younger and and in uh, my undergraduate work, I I did fall into that camp for a while of being mm-hmm. like, oh, big pharma's the problem. You know, our medical system's totally fucked, <laughs> and you know, and got to find you know these alternatives. And now, my perspective has gotten so much more nuanced, and I recognize that um, there's a time and place for everything. Yeah, and um all sorts of different medical strategies, pharmaceuticals, whatever, um, they have a role to play mm-hmm. in a in a system that it seems like we're in the process of developing, and what we're in now is not 
the not the end result that we're working toward and which it seems like the medical system's trying to find a balance right now between the limitations of isolated pharmaceutical um compounds um herbal medicine um integrated lifestyle management all of these different things it's trying to figure out where that balance is and certainly i think pharmaceutical advertising <laughs> there are big problems with that <laughs> yeah i think that's one Agreed. of the core problems yeah. uh, really um it's bad optics and i think that's why so many people are suspicious and i, I find myself kind of a yeah in the middle on this a little bit with a with some skepticism yes. you know i think that yeah the w once direct-to-consumer advertising started happening I, I, it it's a it's a problem you know and in only two countries in the world allow that. Exactly. And, yeah. And we, we, we can, we have to look at that. We, I, I think it's really na naive when anyone's like, Oh, all these companies are really altruistic. I'm like, Nope, no, they are lie. They're, they're, they're interested in their shareholders yes. and profit. So we, let's think about that. And when my daughter broke her arm and had to have emergency surgery, I was grateful that she was given drugs and was being able to work with a great anesthesiologist who was able to completely she had to be put under it safely and all like awesome right like yeah the, that it, i'm grateful for because to just have to be awake and endure that without anything it would have been really tough so yeah time and place and uh yeah it but it's it's a big topic and i i think there's the uh, the optics of it aren't great with the advertising and then also whenever kind of an expose comes out like there was one that came out in 60 minutes maybe a year and a half ago about the about opioids and how it was six months ago but just how a lot of the companies that are involved in the distribution of opioids and then the pharmaceutical companies themselves and doctor it was this kind of whole story about the diffusion of responsibility but it was basically a whistleblower came out from the dea and said we can't we're not able to really do our work and bust people like we were over these major uh, underground uh, you know opioid uh, situations that are going on so it's it's complicated but even like a story like that none of the companies want to be interviewed or comment on right so it's like that that is it it makes it has this perception of the big bad i don't know so it's they, they, I think they've not done a great job. What started off like, oh, this is great, we can advertise to people, but now people they're skeptical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I think. Yeah, I'm interested to to see how yeah, where that's going. Yeah, where is it going, yeah. and will there ever be any regulatory change around the direct consumer advertising? Because um, <laughs> yeah. it 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 definitely bothers me that um, someone's going to a doctor and basically advocating for their own treatment based on a limited yeah. understanding of yeah. the drug, their condition, you know, whatever. Yeah. And and it, it takes some autonomy away from doctors and nurses and other healthcare professionals that prob many of them, not all of them, but many of them get into the profession because they want to help people 100%. and they want to have that absolutely experience working with people, trying to understand what's going on and guide yep. them to some solutions. And if uh, the patient's coming to them saying, this is what I want, or if they're getting pressure from other angles, like, I mean, there are issues with insurance and the way that that affects costs and the way that hospitals yeah. have to ha have such high throughput, you know, yeah. and it, it limits the amount of time that doctors and nurses can spend with patients. 
you know, there's, there's all of these these elements that um, seem to be stripping away the healthcare professionals ability to actually do the job that they want to do and have studied to to try to do have you seen the data on empathy during medical school no i don't think uh, so oh my really gosh drops. so it's like they you know people come into medical school feeling like empathetic toward other people i'm here to help or whatever by year three it's like it's completely diminished not totally dry. I mean a right. doctor could be listening to write this be like I'm an empathetic person I get that but there was a good study that showed empathy scores drop throughout medical school by year three there's a massive drop and then by the time they're leaving it's like poof, you know they so the process they get pummeled in the process of medical school and and it's long hours and it's intense you talk about sleep deprivation holy cow Walker has great data on that too medical uh, accidents when people are sleep deprived yeah. for these long shifts I I yeah, I, th- I mean, the, the the advertising, it's the U.S. and New Zealand. Every other country says it's unethical and misleading to do this. So that, it, it's got to, I, th- I hope that changes. And, and it's a larger picture, though, right? It's like we have a system that is reliant on people being kind of sick to be profitable, right? We have a, mm-hmm. our medical system is based on profit, whether whatever route that comes through, not on health and wellness, right? Right. So if we were, if people were like, hey, my patients are super healthy and they're going to the sauna consistently and they're exercising, right? I should be rewarded for that. There are systems I've read about that countries that have models somewhat that do that, but Ours is very far away from that. We need medical interventions to be to make money. We need heavy duty equipment where, you know, to, to for five seconds of using this equipment, it cost seven thousand dollars, right? Because yeah. it's a it's a three million dollar machine that we got to pay for with every time we use it, right? So, it's it's complicated. We we've created a weird system that we need. We, we sort of need people to be a little bit sick, but still in there kind of hanging on enough that they're using the system. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, it, it's complex. And I, again, I know I have fr- a good friends who are nurses and doctors and awesome people who are like some of the most diligent people I know who are, are really their hearts in the right place. Um, and they, you know, my doctor from years ago, a few years ago, he was, he was an older guy. And I, I asked him, how long till you retire? He's like, I'm going to, I'm going to go, uh, three more years and I'm out. And I, and then I got a letter about six months later that said, your doctor's retired. So here's <laughs> some new options where I was like, wow. Okay. So he just, he was kind of done. Yeah. You know, great guy, but just kind of like, especially some of the older school doctors, like the new electronic medical records and some of this to kind of tracking and insurance mm-hmm. stuff. They, they, he was like, I just want to be with patients. Yeah. And I am really, I can't, it's hard for me to do that now in, the, in, in this system. Well, yeah. and my interaction with clinicians, doctors, and nurses in the cannabis space is um, there's, there's a whole host of healthcare professionals now that are exiting the formalized medical system, Mm. giving up their licenses, whatever, um, and moving more towards, um, herbal medicine, um, you know, other, uh, forms of treatment, um, chiropractics, um, you know, all sorts of different things. Mm -hmm. And, and the rationale that I've, I've received about that is that this allows me to actually 
work with people mm. on the level that I really wanted that I never could do right. in the healthcare system as it currently stands. Right. And while they would, you know, probably prefer to work within a healthcare system that empowered them more, you know, and they, they would prefer to stay in that system. Um, I'm seeing a lot sort of like mass exodus and they're like, well, you know, there are a lot of people wanting to use cannabis medically. So, you know, that's somewhere where I can apply my expertise, help people, guide them through, um, you know, the the nuances of this sort of thing and try to help them get positive outcomes. Mm. And, you know, um, yeah, it might be somewhat limited and um, risky mm. um, depending on where they are and everything, but um, they seem to be getting more fulfillment yeah. out of that, which has been interesting to yeah, watch. That is interesting. And it, uh. I don't know, to me, it, it just indicates, it, it indicates some serious deficiencies in the system mm. for yeah. sure. Yeah. If there are well-intentioned people that are just having to get out um, and find other mm. ways of working with people, um, yeah, it just shows the, the healthcare system. There are definitely problems. And, you know, when it comes to pharmaceuticals and all that sort of thing, that sort of mantra I chant is they're all tools in the tool chest. Mm. The tools don't tell you how to use the tools. Mm -hmm. And it takes some, you know, wisdom to know how to use a tool properly and when yeah. when to use a different tool, you know, yeah. whatever. And um, that's the perspective I hope to see cultivated over time in the cannabis industry and beyond around pharmaceuticals and sort of conventional healthcare versus alternative medicine, all these sort of things. It's, you know, um, medicinal plants like cannabis and a lot of others, their tools in the tool chest, pharmaceuticals are tools in the tool chest. Um, they have appropriate applications and they have inappropriate applications. Right. And, you know, the best way forward is to understand those limits. And I'm disappointed that a lot of doctors and nurses that I've talked to, um, especially doctors that have gone through medical school, have no idea what the endocannabinoid system is, um, have very little exposure to cannabis broadly, um, and haven't had time to, to do much research because they're fucking busy. I yeah, mean, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, like they have so much going yeah. on. They have a very limited amount of bandwidth and time to even sit down and yeah. dig through the literature to get caught up. And they don't trust a lot of the educational resources out there, which I don't, I don't blame them. That's one yeah. reason why I'm nervous about doing cannabis education is I understand the perception out there. They're like, well, why should I trust you? Yeah. Uh, you know, when, you know, talking about, about these topics and um, it's hard. And, you know, my goal in this podcast and uh, the Curious About Cannabis book and, and the classes I do is to try to, Richard Feynman put it really well. He wrote a book called uh, The Meaning of It All. And for those that don't know, Richard Feynman was a, a scientist and, and really a, a really powerful science educator um, back in the um, sort of early to mid 1900s. Um, I say mid 1900s. But anyway, um, something he talks about in regards to public science education broadly is he says that people are eager to get an answer. They are less patient to get at an answer. Mm. And really, the honest way forward with science education and everything is helping the people get at answers, not getting them 
answers mm-hmm. because science is everything in life is so nuanced, not black mm-hmm. and white. Our brains want to simplify things so yeah. much. And, you know, my goal with these conversations and, and all of the work that I do is I want to try to help people understand better questions to ask and how to get at answers, how to evaluate information, how to have hard conversations about controversial topics and things um, so that we can move closer towards a better understanding. And that, like so many things we've talked about today, there aren't solid answers. Like what age should people, yeah. you know, wait to use cannabis? It's like adult responsible use. Yeah. All there's, this we don't. Yeah. How? Yeah. So mm. the best we can do is get at, at an answer, get mm-hmm. at an understanding. And, and I think it's, it is more about understandings than answers. Yeah. Um, yeah. If that makes sense, the, yeah. the difference there, yeah. just trying to develop a mature perspective. Yeah. A mature perspective and a mature perspective requires bringing it out in the open and talking about it. I think that's a, that, that's, we're, there's no way you can have a mature conversation about a topic if it's, you know, ooh, you got to kind of laugh at it or it's funny or sneak it around or whatever. Let's just talk about things and be mature and then we can get at it in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, before we um, wrap up, um, the last question I want to hit you with is what do you hope to see uh, when it comes to education around cannabis, um, the public dialogue around cannabis, mm. um, where would you like to see the conversation go in the future? Gosh, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, around the education piece and the research piece, I'd love to see us, I'd love to see continued research on youth i think it's really important it gets really tricky there was like the one study out of new zealand that showed there was a lower iq for they tracked students right. who had used it but a lot of people critiqued the methodology and they didn't account for a lot of certain variables there becomes such a chicken or the egg kind of thing that happens when you study young people too like well why is timmy the 15 year old smoking cannabis every day what's going on in his life is there trauma going on and how what role does that play in is he self-medicating for something else you know there's a lot to that but i do think we need to wrap our minds around that a little bit more and it gets tough because we might not have i know nida is uh national institutes of drug abuse they're um, go, undertaking a large study for this right about starting last year but again those results won't we won't know them for years yeah. because it's a longitudinal study that's really the only way to get at this. But I, th- I think we need to continue to understand that. Um, that's where I'd like to see it go. I, I'd, I'd also like to see, again, by what we talk about in a mature way, talking about this in a more open way, you kind of take away the appeal a little bit or the forbidden fruit aspects of it. We can just mm-hmm. talk about it in a straightforward, push through it kind of manner. It takes away some of that. So I think as we continue to do that, it will kind of the demystification process of it will be good. I do think um, I'd like to see the conversation uh, discussed a little bit more on a, you know, when it comes to policy, really, uh, you know, we're in this very strange place where a lot of states have medical laws. It's legal in some states. It's prohibited in others. And then we have on a federal level, Schedule 1. I think that Schedule One status federally really needs a good reassessment. Yeah, and let's look at all the comprehensive data. Right, we had the National Academy of Sciences paper 
paper or review that came out yeah. a couple of years ago that really got to, to that really dove into you know thousands of papers to really understand this, looking at a lot of the research done in Israel and other countries, and you know, so so it, I think that if we're going to get to a really realistic place, there there can be some medical medical applications of cert, for certain things with certain you know types of cannabis products for some people. So let's acknowledge that. And, and to say this is a Schedule 1, I think it kind of diminishes the credibility of the, the federal government to keep it there and not be, and, and be unwilling to, to really discuss it. And I, and I hear murmurings of it sometimes that yeah. get brought up, but never in a real serious way. So I, I, I think that's an important place to get, have a better sense to is really understanding that. And um, yeah, that's kind of where I'd like it to go. I think, can, can, you know, there's... Can, can, there's a lot of interest in this topic. So continued conversations with parents and their kids, I think is really important. Well, yeah. What's, yeah. I mean, what, a couple things on that. One, what do you think parents should be doing yeah. to arm themselves with, you know, knowledge and understanding to, yeah. to deal with the fact that their kids might experiment with cannabis you know or, or just come and talk to them about it yeah they i think one it starts with having really open communication with your kids about all things because you're not going to have poor communication with them and then awkwardly sit down with them and talk about drugs and sex they're gonna you want to see your kid run the 100 meter dash really fast do that and you'll <laughs> see them run as fast as you know an Olympic sprinter because they're gonna be like give me a, get me out of here so having open conversation about most things it naturally goes into that i think you know there's good data that shows parental uh expectations and hopes really does influence a young person's decisions so to to have that honest conversation and say you know my my hope and expectation is that you wait and get through your teenage years in a really natural way let your brain develop but you may be curious about this or you may be around it and i want you to be empowered with knowledge and information and I want you to be comfortable always talking to me about it, no yeah. matter what. So that's to create that dynamic. <coughs> I think is sorry is excuse me is really important for parents because it creates an open line of communication. It lets their kid know, like, hey, it signals to the kid, like, I, I do care about this, and I care about you, and I'm not going to kind of bail on it and not discuss it with you. I want to talk about it, uh, and I want you to know you can talk to me about it. In, and as a parent with two teenagers, it's really easy to think everything we say to our kids, they completely dismiss, ignore, and falls on deaf ears. It's not true. And it looks like that and feels like that sometimes. Yeah. But actually, like it's interesting with sus things that I'll talk about with them, they'll bring up with me later. Or I'll he overhear them talk about it with their friends. Or you know, they do make a decision based on something we talked about when I thought it was kind of in one ear and out the other. So I, I think hanging in there with them and having those conversations is really, really important. But letting them know your your hopes and expectations around their decision-making and knowing they may take a different path than that. So they need to really have, you know, have a deep, deep knowledge as they can, think critically about it and know that you are an advocate for them and, and a person they can go to always. That's kind of what I would say to parents. You yeah. Know, it's a, 
there's, I mean, you can find a lot of different articles online of like kind of tips, how to bring certain things up or how to talk about them in certain ways. Asking questions is really important instead of us just assuming things. Never yes. get into comparing that. Well, well, my friend Tom, his kid, blah, 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 blah. And they have straight A's and don't do that. Don't compare your kid to some, your, one of your friend's kids that always backfires. There's a tip. You can find a lot of information online of approaching how to talk to your teen about drugs. But I think some of those those aspects that I mentioned before are really important. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's that's wonderful advice. That's definitely, you know, when my daughter gets older and can actually talk, <laughs> um, one of my primary goals is to make sure that she feels comfortable being able to talk to me about anything. Yeah. Even if it's something I'm uncomfortable with or don't know much about, or whatever, it's just like, if it's important to you and you want yeah. to discuss something, I'm here to be, you know, that support and try to work through that, whatever it is, yeah. um, you know, together, rather than cultivating an attitude of, um, yeah, just trying to avoid the hard topics with the parents. I, it, I, I definitely don't yeah. want that to happen where, where she goes elsewhere to discuss these critical right. uh, things that will affect her life, you know, um, sometimes pretty profoundly depending on, on how it goes. And, um, and, and to, to spin off from that, what would you say your biggest concerns are concerning adolescent cannabis use? Mm. Yeah, definitely the, the earlier the age, chronic use, um, using it as a way to deal with a lot of, kind of stuff going on in their life as a, as a coping mechanism I think and then really my biggest concern is like is high potency products and then uh, not knowing dosage around edibles mm -hmm. so concentrates and edibles I think is our, our big one for them because again we are seeing some uptick in that where people are having yeah. adverse responses to those products um, so I think that those are my biggest concerns with it yeah, yeah one one thing that ways on my mind that I don't know if we've talked about or not, but the idea that adolescent cannabis use can affect um, emotional intelligence. Yeah. Um, it, it changes depending on the context. And obviously all of this is so nuanced and individualized, but it can have the effect of limiting your social interactions. Absolutely. Changing the way that a child is interacting with a peer yep. um, in the way that they're perceiving um, information that's being given back to them from peers and that sort of thing. And that's that's a concern that I personally have um, that I, I'd like to see more conversation and research around yeah. that emotional intelligence, emotional development. Well, the, the social isolation piece is a big issue in society right now anyway. But also, like, you know, cannabis can be kind of an anti-social drug, right? It's like, or, you know, you're you're sitting there, your eyes are super bloodshot, your mouth is super dry, you feel a little bit, like, uh, you know, wobbly, and you're kind of like, do I really want to go out and be social right now and, like, right, interact right, with yeah. people? Oh, my gosh, no way. I mean, I know people who are, you know, in their 50s who say, Oh yeah, I use cannabis once in a while, but I could never fathom using it, like going to the grocery store or something and interacting and dealing with people. No way. So like, I think like a lot of people can identify with that, but if you're that age and you're learning how to navigate social interaction and 
you know, living in the world and what that's like, and, and you're, this thing encourages you to socially isolate a little bit more. Yeah, it's going to impact that effect. Yeah, that, and you that, that level. Of, yeah, and you you don't have a a baseline of what these social interactions. Yeah. You know, are would play out otherwise, and that sort of thing. And right. Um. Yeah, that's that's something that I. Yeah, I'm interested to see more information about that, and 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 how that can be how that risk can be minimized. That's, that's another thing that's been on my mind lately is, okay, you know, we do our best to educate adolescents, educate parents, encourage good conversation, but let's just assume that's all happening. And a 15 year old decides regardless that they're going to, you know, be using cannabis and everything. Well then how do you minimize those risks? Yeah. How, what, what sort of um, strategies, support structures, and everything can be there? And I, I'm interested to see that development too, because I think with states legalizing cannabis, it it pushes this more to the forefront, where it, it has to be more directly addressed. Yeah. It's now much more in the public uh, conversation and everything. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I I don't necessarily think that. Um, taking the, I had a good friend of mine uh, when I was in high school who um, was using cannabis and he woke up one morning to find a police officer standing over his bed and his mom had called the police on him because she had found his bong in his closet. And I know for a fact that that was not helpful. No. And yeah, that would be alarm yeah there'd be a lot there's, there's yeah. several <laughs> several layers to yeah, that yeah, yeah, that yeah. Um, mm. are problematic mm. but i know that a lot of parents don't know what to do they don't it's once once yeah. the once it's there once the ball is rolling and they know they're they're using and then they want to right what do you yeah i've talked to parents who deal with this on a range of levels where it's like we're gonna hold uh, right uh it's a carrot and a stick, right? We're going to punish you or reward you, or we're going to drug test you every week, or we're going to do, right? There's, there's things that it, it's really difficult because no one, no one really wants that for their kid. I mean, I mean, I think there are some really permissive parents who are pretty cool with whatever, but you know, it, it's tough if your kid's using cannabis multiple times a day and you're seeing, you can tell as a parent, it's not a great outcome mm-hmm. there. You know, it's not like a, once in a blue moon thing and it right. shifts my perspective slightly and I take one hit of low potency <laughs> flour. It's not generally showing no. up that way. So yeah, it becomes, it's a really tough thing to, to negotiate of how to best approach that um, for parents. It's tough because there's a lot of different options. And so you have to kind of like f- find one, work with one that can work with the temperament and personality of your kid, who they are, your relationship with them all of it it's yeah because no one really wants to see that it's really tough i've definitely talked to parents who've taken different routes everyone takes different routes you know or what to do with that but yeah 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 totally it's um yeah parenthood is (laughs) riddled with anxiety for a number of reasons i i know i have a lot to look forward to (laughs) yeah you want to like have like (laughs) i know right like 
the most the the the, the 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 task and role in the world that has like the least amount of gratitude associated with it and <laughs> it's gonna cost you a lot of money and energy and time and stress i think my beard would still be totally dark if i had you know <laughs> kids but it's all good i love my kids they're they're great they're really both neat people and I, I and i'm really grateful that we we talk really openly about all this stuff you can imagine yeah you know i really think it's important to to do that and um well i think to really listen to them too i think when they get um older they're gonna look back on that and value it in a totally different way yeah, i hope so um yeah. i think so yeah. i think they will for yeah. sure yeah. um well anyway you've been extremely extremely gracious with your time <laughs> i really really appreciate it um no problem. before we sign off is there anything else you um want to share or sure go outside get off screens <laughs> get off screens reduce the blue light <laughs> yeah, get more yeah, sleep yeah really though i mean i think we're a little bit like nature deficient right now i, I i'm a huge advocate for getting outside and just be whatever that looks like walk around your neighborhood, take a hike. You don't have to go hike 10 miles, but just more outside, the more outside time humans have, I think the better off we are. Yeah. And, and find a balance with that screen. Don't let it control you. I yeah. couldn't agree more. Yeah. Even when uh, my wife and I can find brief moments of time to just walk around the block to get outside of the house. It's awesome. amazing <laughs> what that does. It does a lot. It's and, a reset, a rebalance. Yeah. Yeah. Huge been a huge part of my adult life and the entire life really is being outside can't stress it enough yeah so, totally yeah. well awesome That's well <laughs> thank you thank you so much for joining yeah. me for thank this you, man. first for interview me. yeah Thanks we might have me. to set up some more uh, yeah. later on especially as as um the cannabis classroom gets going yeah. i'm going to be really interested to touch base with you and hear about how that goes and <laughs> what too. what feedback you get <laughs> yeah yeah um me too. and to understand how universities start to um incorporate cannabis education broadly. Yeah. I'm, I'm really fascinated to see how that goes. So yeah. anyway, um, thanks so much, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this interview. Um, you can find out more by going to CACpodcast.com or you can find uh, Curious About Cannabis on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Thanks and have a great rest of your day. Take it easy. If you want to learn more about cannabis, you can check out the Curious About Cannabis book, available now on Amazon.com and other online book retailers. The Curious About Cannabis podcast is presented by Natural Learning Enterprises a science education company dedicated to the enhancement of public scientific literacy through education about the natural world. Curious About Cannabis is just one of several learning initiatives produced by Natural Learning Enterprises. To learn more, go to www.naturallearningenterprises.com or connect with NLE on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter.